Every life tells a story, and through each life, an even greater story is being told. Today we're going to talk to Powell Woods. He's one of many voices of faith. Hi, I'm Mark Matsky. Welcome to Voices of Faith. It's my pleasure to have today on the show Powell Woods, who's been a pastor in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, for many years, currently serving uh, in uh, retirement mode at uh, Hope Aurora, uh, Lutheran Church in Aurora, Ohio. In the spirit of full disclosure, I served with Powell for my first five years in ministry at our Redeemer Lutheran Church in Solon, Ohio. And we've got an awful lot to talk about today, so I welcome on board Powell Woods. Thank you. There's uh, so many things I want to ask you today, but the first is uh, currently in your service to Hope, um, what are some of the things that you see happening there in Aurora uh, as far as the church and the kingdom is concerned? Well, Hope is a congregation, a small congregation. Uh, we worship about 50 to 55 on a Sunday. And um, like many of our Lutheran um, churches, it's uh, a more advanced age in, in the uh, congregation itself, although we do have some young people. And um, it's a congregation where the people have known each other for literally 20, 30, 40 years even, and have helped each other through thick and thin. And so that makes a very unified, loving family atmosphere of the congregation, uh, but they and I are also always interested in outreach and how to get that going, and sometimes the two don't necessarily work together. Uh, if you have a congregation that's very happy with each other, uh, that can actually even radiate to visitors in, in, in an odd sense to make them feel like they're really not quite part of things, you know, so that's something we struggle with and we work with is trying to be welcoming, trying to get visitors at all to begin with, and then when we get them to be welcoming. Yeah, to break into that circle somehow, even though there's no intention to keep anyone out. Right. The perception is everybody knows each other, but I don't know anyone. Yes, that's in the, tough. In the church that you and I served, um, our Redeemer, that was, as you know, a very a much larger but a very unified congregation. And one of the members once said, after uh, she and her husband had been members for uh, oh several years, that she always continued to feel a little bit like the spouse at a high school reunion where people are nice to you, but you're just not part of it. And that's a hard thing, I yes. think, for congregations to deal with because you want the fellowship and the unity, but by the same token, you want people to feel welcome and included. Mm -hmm. It's not exactly clickism. It's not that. It's just the way things turn out with a unified congregation. Sure. The one thing that I really wanted to make sure that we talked about today is your story. And if you can sketch out for us um, and for the listeners today, how did Christ pursue you and how did he finally get you? That's a very good way to phrase the question. 
Uh, I was a, uh, my parents were not religious, never went to church a day in their life, as far as I know. And I was not raised uh, in any church. And so I grew up to be a very, uh, an atheist, and not only an atheist, but a zealous atheist. I would try to find people with faith and argue with them about their faith. Um, and that continued, uh, really, until I was well into my 30s. And uh, when I got to be 35 years old, I was living in Green Bay, Wisconsin with my wife. Of, at that time, two or three years, we'd been married. And um, things were not going well in my life. Um, I didn't have a job at the time. I'd gone up there for one job that had not worked out. And um, one day, um, my wife and I had had a disagreement in, in, in making up, as you do. Uh, she had asked me if I would start attending church with her. And since I thought at the time I was probably wrong, in this argument, I agreed, even though I expected nothing to come of it. So we started going to a little Lutheran church down the road. And it was being pastored at the time by uh, a man who was the uh, chaplain at a uh, local penitentiary. And he was just doing it part-time for them while they were looking for a full-time pastor. And uh, I really liked him. He was kind of a tough guy, preached in a way a little more like a Baptist than a Lutheran. Every week it was something to do with getting saved or you're going to go to hell. I mean, and he got that into his message almost every week. And while I didn't really believe what he was saying, I, I liked him a lot. And one day he said the thing, I think, that um, through which Christ pursued me. And that was, he said that in his experience as a penitentiary chaplain, there was pretty much only one time that people ever came to Christ, that men came to Christ. And that was when they had given up on everything else, including themselves. And that haunted me. I went home that afternoon. I was standing out in the backyard thinking. And um, I thought, I think that's me. Uh, I wasn't in the gutter. Uh, I wasn't a drunk. But I had no prospects. And when I reviewed my life, at the time it uh, struck me as the, the opposite of a Horatio Alger story. Are you familiar with Horatio mm -hmm. Alger? Yeah. He was a very popular dime novelist back in the late 19th, early 20th century who wrote rags to riches stories about people who came out of the gutter and ascended to high levels. And mm -hmm. I thought, gee, I'm kind of the opposite of that. <laughs> I was raised in a family where they loved me. We had plenty of money. Um, uh, you know, I was endowed with decent interpersonal skills. I could get along with people. I had friends. I was reasonably smart. I had college degrees. And yet everything I had done uh, kind of went south. Nothing worked at all. It all, you know, just went to shipwreck. So I thought, um, I guess that's me. So uh, I went in and told my wife that. And um, she said, um, uh, what are you going to do about it? And I said, well, I'm going to read the Bible. Um, I used to teach literature, so it was a natural thing for me to do. And and uh, she said, well, if you'll do that, then I'll, she had a job. She said, we'll pay the bill somehow. So I sat there for 10, 12 hours a day reading the Bible, understanding about perhaps a third of what I was reading. Mm -hmm. And um, I had gotten to the Lamentations of Jeremiah. Um, I, in our terms now, Mark, the way you and I would talk, I had I'd received the law, right? Mm -hmm. uh, I hadn't really heard the gospel yet, except what I was reading, and I, which I didn't really understand. So... When I got to the Lamentations of Jeremiah, and as you know, it's a book about the fall of Jerusalem and how he is lamenting and weeping over the ruins of Jerusalem. And the whole book is, is really very uh, downcast, very sad, very mournful, uh, grieving kind of a book. Right in the middle of it, um, I went out to get the mail and got a letter telling me that I had not been 
received a job that I'd applied for, which was my last shot at a good job in Green Bay, I thought. And so I went and I thought, well, I don't know what I'm going to do next. But I picked up the Bible and where I started reading was right in chapter 3 where he says um, that uh, his, my soul is downcast within me. But then I think of this and therefore I have hope that the mercies of the Lord are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. I said to myself, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will wait for him. And I thought, there's no way that's a coincidence, that the only positive words in the middle of a book of mourning came to me at this exact point. Uh, that's when I think, uh, in the terms that I think of now, Christ spoke to me. And I told my wife that night that um, I, I believe. I believe this now. And we decided to make um, church and our faith the center of our lives, and did so. And, um, and then after that, you know, I did... We ended up moving back to Milwaukee, and I got a job there, and things went well. I'm not saying I was materially rewarded for my faith, but, you know, my lives did turn around. Our marriage got much, much better, and uh, and uh, ended up going into ministry years later. Mm-hmm. Yeah, talk about that a little bit, if you will. What, how did the transition from new believer to feeling a call to ministry, yeah. what were some of the milestones along the way that got you from... Point A to, to B. To B. Well, when we moved back to Milwaukee, we joined a church. It was in those days called an LCA church. I w- we were there for about a year and a half or two years, and um, really we were hearing much more uh, politics coming out of the pulpit than the gospel. And um, I still really didn't know much about my faith. I knew I believed, but that's about all I knew. And uh, and so we um, left that church, and we joined a little Missouri Senate church in Milwaukee, called Luther Memorial Chapel in uh, Sherwood. And um, uh, older pastor there and so forth. It was very inspirational to us. So um, joined that church. Three months later, I was offered a job in Cleveland, came to Cleveland, um, and uh, joined our Redeemer Lutheran as a member, where you and I later served as pastors. And mm-hmm. and uh, the pastor of that church, a guy named Herb Borshow, uh, asked me at some point if I would like to teach Bible study. I said, I don't know anything. What would I teach? Well, he said, we have materials that we can give you that will help you so I started doing that, and I did that for about 10 years. And um, during that time, I got more and more enthused about Bible study. You probably won't believe this, Mark, but um, the book that inspired me tremendously was Peeper's Dogmatics. <laughs> it really did. It's a beautifully written thing. It's, mm-hmm. it's you know, systematic theology. I loved it. And so I read that thing, poured over, took notes, all that, and then taught classes. And um, finally, uh, I had I'd gotten to a job. Uh, I was with Nestle company at the time, and uh, I was um, uh, an officer, I was a vice president of uh, human resources with Nestle, and in 1990, I guess it was, um, our branch of Nestle was uh, uh, merged with Carnation Company, which was another Nestle company in Los Angeles, and the uh, business was going to be moved to Los Angeles, so if I was going to stay with them, I would have had to move my family to Los Angeles, and I did not want to move my family to Los Angeles, so that, in effect, said that um, I need to find something else. And then, uh, about two weeks later, a letter from the seminary showed up at uh, Pastor Borschelt's office saying they were looking for people for what they called at that time the colloquy program, which was a two years of classes and then a year of convertible vicarage. You didn't have to go back to the fourth year. Mm-hmm. And at my age, I was 50 at the time. I thought, well, you know, I could be in ministry by the time I'm 52, and it's a lot of years left after that, so... Um, prayed about it for about six or eight months and um, 
ultimately, Karen and I became convinced that that's what the Lord wanted us to do. So, and it's the best uh, decision that God ever made for me. <laughs> <laughs> so, ended up, uh, and and, uh, and and then when I came up for vicarage, why the uh, assistant pastor at our Redeemer had just taken a call down to Louisiana, so they asked us if we'd like to come back, and I said I'd love to come back. So, mm-hmm. knew the people and all that. So that's what we did. Now, talking about your background and, you know, where you came from and how God brought you to faith, what were some ways, if any, that you could draw on that as you ministered to people then? Um, did that help you to understand some of their struggles or, or how did that equip you in any way? Well, um, yeah, I think uh, I would say having had the experience of seeing my life without Christ come to shipwreck. Again, maybe not in any traditional terms of poverty or, or, or drugs or anything, but just in the sense of coming to the conclusion that I could not make it work. And, and, and then what do you do when you come to that conclusion? Do you go get another degree? You know, I had a few of those that wasn't doing much good, you know, got another job, I, you know, um, none of that was working. Nothing. I, I came to the end of my wits is the way I always thought of it, to where I did not have, uh, in, in terms of just intellectual capability or judgment, the ability to turn my life into anything worthwhile. So I ran out of secular hope, <laughs> I guess mm-hmm. you could call it that, uh, just as the uh, prison chaplain had said. And uh, so from that perspective, um, I do feel that I can identify with people who in other way are putting their hopes to all kinds of strange things mm-hmm. that haven't worked for them, but they somehow think will in the future. And, and uh, hoping in anything apart from Christ is really a tremendous deterrent mm-hmm. from coming to faith, it seems to me. Which is, I suppose, what Jesus meant when he said uh, being difficult for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven, because it's not that rich men are more sinful or anything like that. It's just that... Um, they can continue to hope so much in the things of this world because they turned out so well for them that why would they need mm-hmm. a savior? So uh, I do feel I can identify in that way. Then even the tragedies can be turned to blessings, ultimately. And that I've found to be an effective way to talk sometimes to people who are. Because I always feel, as I don't know how you feel about this, Mark, but I always feel that when I'm preaching, I'm preaching to people I can't see. I mean... I'm preaching to what's inside them. Mm-hmm. And you'd never know it from what's outside them most of the time. Right. Happy, cheerful to be there, mm-hmm. pleasant and all that. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying their lives are tragedies, but we all know what goes on inside our hearts and minds and souls. And that's who I'm talking to. And so I go on the assumption that people have, in almost in every case probably, some abiding unhappiness, some abiding what hopelessness something mm-hmm. or grief grief mm-hmm. frustration you know that goes on inside them that they don't show to the world right but that needs to be spoken to mm-hmm. and i think christ is the only answer for those people the question is getting them to accept that <laughs> right and it, but you have to be hearing it yeah you can't accept it without hearing it yeah. and i think that's one of the things that's peculiar to the pastoral task mm-hmm. is that you're if somebody's within radius of hearing you then hopefully they're hearing christ being preached yes. you know that's really your usefulness that, in that's a sense a, yeah, yeah. 
and sort of um, piggybacking on that, for yourself, what have been some of the more meaningful events or moments in your ministry that you can think of? That's a very good question. Um, not an easy one for me to answer because I, 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 my life is not, my experience, my experiences in my life have not been, um, in a sense, emotionally volatile. I'm not that, I'm sort of, I guess, fairly even-tempered person. I don't tend to have dramatic <laughs> experiences. Um, but I would say um, this isn't exactly ministry. It's more to do with prayer life. You and I were talking about this yesterday that uh, uh, since I have really become much, much more dedicated to uh, memorizing the word and to praying in the, in, in the same context as, you know, reciting verses to myself and praying, I've just seen uh, wonderful answers to prayer in terms of conversion, in terms of people coming to the Lord. And I've become convinced that, you know, um, prayer is very, very powerful, especially when it is focused on bringing people to Christ. And it's, it's not the only thing one does. Obviously, you have to speak the word if you can. But, um, that is a, probably a, a very good answer to what you're asking. But um, other than that, in ministry, uh, the best the best time I ever had in ministry were the five years we served together. <laughs> I thought that was uh, just a wonderful time, and the church was growing, and uh, it's a wonderful congregation, anyhow, as you know, very unified. And uh, so, and it was very meaningful to me when you left to go to the other church. <laughs> but, <laughs> you notice the uh, open-ended quality of that word well, choice. Meaningful, meaningful yes. yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm just kidding. But, <laughs> but uh, that was a wonderful time. I really was. I enjoyed that very much. And uh, I guess, you know, other than that, it's, it's and I, I wouldn't say any one dramatic moment. You know, mm-hmm. over any other. It was just, it's wonderful when you can feel people, uh, when you preach, as you know, you, you have a sense of whether you're connecting or not, I think, with people. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, I mean, sometimes you are, sometimes you sense you're not so much, you know. And I guess when I when I feel that I've, um, that I've uh, delivered something, uh, you know, of, of uh, gospel substance to people and that they connected. Actually, I just thought of something, funerals. Mm-hmm. Interestingly yeah. enough, preaching at funerals is some of the most powerful experiences I've had. Because if, if a person <clears throat> knows another person who's died well enough to go to their funeral, there's some impact of that death on them. You know there mm-hmm. is. And uh, so never are people probably more potentially open to hearing the gospel, in my experience, than at a funeral. And so for that reason, I, I like funerals, and I think to say, but because I like, because uh, you have attentiveness at a funeral. You know, people can't laugh it off. So uh, that 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 has been some product. That has been some of the most meaningful. And I've known a few cases where people just openly were converted right at funerals. You know, mm-hmm. came to Christ, then wanted to join the church. That's that. Yeah, I've had the same experience, really. Yeah, yeah. And sometimes you feel like you're going out on the clothesline in a way by presenting law and gospel in a clear way, yeah. because there's always a risk with that that oh. somebody could say, "Well, you didn't talk about how good a person they were, or yeah. eulogize them." Uh, and have that be the focus of your message. But in 16 years of doing this, I've never had anybody come up to me after a funeral and react that way. What I have had has been people sincerely, genuinely thankful for presenting the gospel and having that be the focus. Yeah, and in one one thing, uh, I didn't start out in ministry being convinced of the uh, desirability of open caskets at a funeral uh, it, I, it always seemed kind of macabre to me but I have become convinced 
that um, when they behold a person who is now lifeless, and then when that casket's closed and the coffin's put up right in front of the congregation for the uh, for the, the message and the service, uh, in one sense you don't have to preach a lot of law because it's sitting there right in front of them, and. Uh, it's it's I, I always do a synopsis of the person's life, but you know not with the idea of eulogizing them really. And so one of the seminary profs once said in the class, you know, the danger of eulogizing somebody at a funeral is that you're speaking to people who knew that person a whole lot better than you do, and it may come across you may be wrong <laughs> for mm-hmm. one thing, and you just don't know, and then you lose complete credibility. So I keep that as neutral as I can. I mean, generally positive vein, I guess, but nonetheless neutral. And then you go to the gospel, mm-hmm. and uh, it's uh, I, I I love doing funerals. Yeah, it's funny because generally speaking, people assume that you would rather do a wedding than a funeral because they say, "Well, a wedding is a positive, happy occasion, and the funeral everybody's yeah. downcast, of course." But it seems to me that it's just the opposite, really. <laughs> that all the pastors that I've ever talked to see that the opportunity to present the gospel is, I don't know if it's more obvious at a funeral perhaps, or there's a sense that people are listening and really need that comfort, whereas at a wedding, there may be a more of a distraction factor oh, yeah. with the message that you're trying to deliver, not to say that it's an unimportant occasion or that you don't want to present marriage in the context of Scripture and the gospel, but by and large... You, f- I feel sometimes less useful preaching at a wedding than I do at a funeral. Sure, I, that's just a perception. Well, their minds aren't really totally on the message anyhow. They're nervous and they're you know they they don't need Jesus. They've got each other and mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. and all that kind of thing. It's uh, I know exactly what you mean. It's, uh, and, and also, there's a lot of um, just tension at a wedding. Typically, that you know may not be obvious to everybody else, but you know the mother of the bride is taught as a wire, and I've seen. I've seen brides show up in front of me, and they're just, you know, they're just, they're just absolutely, you know, just from the sheer pressure of the day, uh, can be tough for them. So, yeah, I, I, it's, it's kind of the opposite of what I expected, mm-hmm. in a sense. It really mm-hmm. is. It's, uh, the last question I have for you today is, is just this. As a follower of Jesus Christ, what would you say he is building in you right now? What's he doing for you today? Um, my chief personal fascination, I guess, um, amounting almost to an obsession in ministry, has been with the scriptures, as it is, I'm sure, with all of us. But I, that's, um, that's what I preach, that's what I teach, that's what I dwell on day after day. I, I was a literature teacher in my first career. And so that's probably why when I mentioned coming to the conclusion that, uh, okay, I guess I'll turn to, however I thought about it, I remember what the words were, uh, it was turning to the Bible. I mean, that, that, that's exactly what I did. I went to the literature right away. And and one of the things that, I, that very early on, we were going to a church that was, um, I would have to say, very liberal in their attitudes towards Scripture, uh, turned me off of that church, was that they were playing games with the book. I mean, you don't, you don't take Hamlet and decide that Shakespeare didn't write this and that and the other thing because it doesn't square with your idea of Hamlet, you know? Mm-hmm. You deal with it, what, the textus recepticus or whatever it's called? Yeah. That's the text you deal with. And so that's what has always been my chief focus and fascination in, in, in the subject of preaching. So what is Jesus building in me right now 
is um, I think in a certain way I may not even know what he's building in me right now. He he is uh, my enthusiasm for the Bible, for reading it, for teaching it um, is is undiminished and it increases over the years rather than decreases. And that's why it's so different than any other book because. Mm-hmm. How many times do you want to read the same novel? You know, whatever. But the Bible, is, as you know, has no bottom to it. I mean, there's there, there's there's just no limit to the wisdom that is that is in there. So um, that's what I guess the building part right now for me is is uh, is the time I spend every day in uh, reciting the Word, memorizing more Scripture, reading more Scripture, and uh, and uh, praying. Uh, it's uh, it's the best moment of my day. It's the best moments in my life, really. And uh, preparing a sermon, all of that, it's labor of love. So I have to think of it in terms of the inscripturated word, I guess you'd say, and uh, and the word proclaimed, um, that I my confidence just uh, continues to build and build and build, you know, and my salvation and the salvation of, of, uh, of all those who believe. So um, that would be my answer. I'm not sure how... <laughs> It's it's, a, it's not a concrete answer, but I don't think I have a concrete answer. I have just the uh, the, uh, the words of, of, of the Bible. Well, and you shared with me uh, in our conversation last night, Psalm one. Mm. You had something really wonderful to say about that, and how that relates to what you're sharing right now. Uh, can we unpack that a little bit? <laughs> well, uh, and I got this from. Um, Professor Reed Lesson, who uh, did a short course on Psalms in Cleveland several years ago. And Psalm 1 um, goes, uh, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the way of the um, wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers, but his delight is in the Torah, which is usually translated law, but as you and I know, is really more accurately translated uh, instruction of the Lord. And on his instruction, he, and then the verb usually that is uh, is translated meditates, day and night. Meditates means to think about, I guess, to dwell on. But the Hebrew word that is uh, translated that is, is hagah, which is actually an agricultural, a bovine term that refers to the digestion that cattle uh, perform upon grass. As they digest grass, it passes from one stomach to the next. And, uh, and then at the end of the whole process, the cow burps. And so what comes out of the cow in that sense is, is determined by what goes in. So it's a digestive process. And that's why I prefer, uh, instead of meditate, to translate it ruminate. The ruminate comes from the rumen of the cow, you know. And uh, what that tells me is that when we delight in the instruction of the Lord, when we focus on the scriptures, when we read them, when we memorize them, when we proclaim them, when we share them, um, those become part of us. You know, Jesus compares them to manna, right? I mean, it, it's it's a it, it's a it's an eating. You, you eat the word of God, you know, in a sense more than you just hear it. Uh, whether it comes through the ear or the eye, it becomes part of you, and then you digest it, and it's working on you, whether you're necessarily thinking about it or not at that point. And I was reminded of the uh, parable Jesus tells about the. I think it's the farmer who plants grain, and then day and night it grows whether he's aware of it or not. So there's a way in which the work of the Lord in us, I think, does not necessarily engage our consciousness at all points, but actually builds us up, you know, and changes us um, and creates in us, hopefully, more and more the mind of Christ, even when we're not aware of it. Um, So that's one part of the psalm that is very uh, powerful for me. 
And the other is at the end of the psalm, where um, he says, uh, the concluding verse is that the, uh, he, the, he knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. And as you know, the wicked and the righteous are two groups that are mentioned repeatedly in the Psalms. I think the wicked is mentioned something like 72 times and the righteous 56 times or something of that nature. And um, when you first read that, you think, well, wicked and righteous must refer to the wicked would be those who are morally deficient and those the righteous are those who are morally and spiritually upright. But as Lessing pointed out, no, that's not what they mean at all. The righteous are those who call on the name of the Lord, who basically connect to the Lord through faith. Same definition as in Romans 3, mm-hmm. right? basically, you know, Romans 3 and 4. Um, and the wicked are those who have abrogated their relationship with God and gone their own way. So those who call the name of the Lord are the righteous, and he knows the way of the righteous. And what does know mean? Would you remember in Hebrew there's two words for know? One has to do with cognitive understanding, memory, intellect, and all that. The other is relational. Adam knew his wife and she conceived. It's an intimate relationship. Mm-hmm. Well, that's the one that's used here. So no doesn't just mean is aware of. No means he interacts with the righteous because they ask him to. Mm-hmm. They call on his name and so he's part of their life. He's working in them. He's hagaing in them and he's also working in them in other ways. Whereas the, the wicked have rejected that and therefore they perish, not because he wipes them out, but because they have abandoned the source of life and gone their own way. Mm -hmm. So all that, you know, in one psalm, that's the kind of thing that gets me so excited. And honestly, a little bit, too, about the original languages. I mean, about, you know, not necessarily, I I don't know, I mean, we could argue forever as to whether or not it's important for pastors to actually have to know these. For me, it's been a tremendous blessing because, you know, it it slows you down, forces you to think, and, and then you begin to see the dimension of this and... I never would have gotten that out of the first psalm without, you know, somebody explaining to me the Hebrew mm-hmm. word and, and the, uh, for no and for, um, and, uh, of course, for um, meditate or, or ruminate. Excellent. Yeah. Well, I thank you very much for joining in conversation with me today. And uh, tremendously meaningful to me as well was the five years that we spent oh. in ministry together uh, at in many ways that set a course for me and you were very influential on my whole pastoral demeanor. So I, I thank you for that. And, uh, well, you required zero supervision. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, not that you wouldn't have accepted it, but you yeah. just didn't need it. And, uh, and I think I told you one time that, uh, I considered in many ways, I think certainly spiritually and some other ways too, you were probably my equal or superior in maturity. <laughs> so it was fine for me. It was the easiest thing in the world to just let her go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you were a huge blessing to that church. And as you well know, people oh. still remember you there. Um, that's uh, more due to their graciousness, I think, <laughs> than anything else. We're trying to outdo each other. You know? Yeah, I know. <laughs> It's an arm wrestling yes, match of humility. No, I'm more humble than you. But thank you very, very much. I appreciate it. And uh, if there is anything that you would like for us to talk about here on Voices of Faith, if you'd like to recommend a guest, uh, please feel free to write to faithpodcast at outlook.com. Again, that's faithpodcast at outlook.com. Once again, I'd like to say thank you to our guest, Powell Woods, and I encourage you to find us on iTunes, 
rate and review us if you would. That will help raise the profile of the program as well so we can gain a wider listenership. And finally, again, remember as you go on your way today, weeping may remain for a night, but joy comes in the morning.